Ideas matter. Ideas matter. This is Dialogue. Hello and welcome to Dialogue. On the sideline of the 2023 Paris Peace Forum, I was able to catch up with Arancha Gondales Laya, the former foreign minister of Spain, for an exclusive interview. As someone who used to work for the WTO, the key organization for free trade and globalization, what does she make of the rise of protectionism? What are her views on seeking common ground in the world of rivalry, the theme of the Paris Peace Forum? And what does she think about the prospects of China-EU cooperation now and going into the future? Welcome to Dialogue, ma'am. Um, you just got back from China and you attended this um, China International Import Expo. Tell us your impression there. Well, I would tell you that the thing that struck me most is how much damage three years of not talking to each other has done. How much there was a desire to reconnect how much there was a willingness to understand, uh, to talk to each other. So I think it's very good that the expo took place, that people could, business people, officials, but more broadly, people-to-people -people connections could resume after this hiatus that was COVID, that did not do a lot of good to any of us. Of course, you know, here we are talking about in this Paris Peace Forum, which is set to open and uh, with the theme of seeking common ground in the world of rivalry. I wonder how would you define the word rivalry here? Yeah, I think rivalry speaks of uh, power competition. Um, and I think the forum essentially has one objective. In a world that is much more driven by power competition, how do we create the spaces for cooperation? Because we have many areas where we are interconnected and if we do not create those spaces for cooperation what we will see is conflict this is a bit what we are we are see happening today we see too many conflicts appearing uh, everywhere so let's go back to creating a spaces where we can talk to each other where we can find solutions for the issues that matter uh, to all of us, from climate change, to financial stability, to the fight against terrorism, uh, to reduction of extreme poverty, and the list goes on. Well, as uh, you said, uh, there's um, you know, the conflicts, crises around the world now. Do you think uh, we are able to find the, the common ground, which is important to uh, further cooperation among countries? Well, I think we have to try. And uh, the fact that it is complicated should not detract us from the principal objective, which is trying. And actually, we have seen how when we really try, we get the results. When the world tries uh, to invent a new set of vaccines, we can do that. When we uh, try uh, to work to alleviate um, the pressures that countries are suffering on the debt side, we get there. So let's not distract ourselves by the fact that it is difficult, and let's focus on making it work. Well, this is a kind of spirit is encouraging. Uh, now we are seeing increasing focus on climate change, for example. Uh, speak of this common ground and the cooperation. Uh, let's take a look at you know, that kind of cooperation between China and the European Union. Uh, you know, green technology, uh, this uh, clean energy, you know, environment protection, and climate change. Do you see there's a 
this growing or strong, uh, I would say, causes for, uh, for closer cooperation between the two sides? I think climate change is one of the areas where the EU and China should work very closely together. Why? Because our citizens want our governments to work to reduce CO2 emissions. And this is where we have to put a, a lot of work together, reducing CO2 emissions. Today, China is the world's largest emitter of CO2 emissions. Second is the US. Third is India. Only after that come the EU. But the EU knows that even its own efforts will not succeed if China, if the US, if India don't succeed in reducing emissions. We are in this together. So I think, I hope that in the upcoming summit that the EU and China will have at the end of the year, they will make climate change and the fight to protect our environment a central piece of this gathering. Mm -hmm. What do you see as the next step, for example, if we focus on uh, China and the EU uh, in, in the fight against the climate change? We know China and the EU used to be in the leadership uh, in the fight against the climate change. You know, China uh, is the one of the leading nations with the technology, with uh, the clean energy, um, but also we are seeing disputes you know, over that between China and the EU, for example, the investigation into the uh, subsidy of EVs in yeah. China. So I would say the most important thing is that China and the EU reduce CO2 emissions. That's objective number one, because uh, that is what's in their hands. Second, I think China and the EU have to join hands in helping poorer countries who do not emit that much, but suffer a lot from climate change to adapt to the challenge of the temperature in the earth increasing. Number three, I think on the technology side, both the EU and China have big ambitions to be leaders on batteries, on electric vehicles, on wind, on solar, on hydrogen. I think it's good. It's important that the competition be fair. And I think there are concerns. And I think it's good when one has concerns. And I, I can see that the EU has concerns. Uh, mostly because it sees its trade deficit with China increasing. I think when there are concerns, the best thing is not to hit each other with a hammer on the head, but to sit down and remove the obstacles that prevent the full potential of this trade relationship from happening. Mm -hmm. uh, speaks, uh, you know, speak of a trade. Um, I mean, you used to work as a director of the office, uh, office of the director general of the WTO. You helped actually eliminate a lot of uh, barriers for free trade and also bring more access for the developing countries uh, you know, to market access there. I wonder how do you uh, see today's uh, status, global status of, of trade now as we are seeing science or protectionism? I think what I've seen in my lifetime is that with two important ingredients, open markets and reforms, both open markets and reforms, um, trade can be a powerful engine for uh, reducing poverty, uh, for growing and for generating employment. Today, the two are suffering from very heavy winds. Open markets is suffering from um, the feeling that uh, some countries have that it has to be also about security. So how much we put security into the equation of open markets is an area where we've got to pay attention. And I think on the reform side, uh, 
Um, I think we also are seeing reforms slowing down. And I think there is one very important reform that we need in order to keep markets open. And this is in strengthening social safety nets. Uh, in, uh, in spending, uh, public spending in education, in healthcare, in pensions, in, in fair taxation systems. If we have these strong social safety nets, it will be easier to keep markets open. If not, people would resort not to protection, but to trade protectionism. And we know that trade protectionism does not protect. Now, you know, there's a lot of uh, terms to describe today's uh, globalization situation. People say, oh, there's a retreat of globalization or deglobalization. I mean, how would you describe uh, this uh, process of globalization today? I don't see a deglobalization. What I see is a different shape of globalization taking place. One uh, where there is a different balance between efficiency and security, where there is a different balance between how much markets and how much states. And certainly uh, um, a, a World Trade Organization uh, as the uh, House of International Trade that in the past had as a mission to help all members of the international community converge under one roof, now becoming the organization that will help us in manage, managing the risks of differences in trade policies, the, different, the divergences in trade policies. So I think globalization is taking a different shape, but globalization is there because globalization is essentially interconnectedness, it's interdependence, and the interdependence remains. Uh, you mentioned a couple of times about uh, you know, the, the idea of a security, national security. Uh, are you concerned with uh, probably, you know, sometimes probably overemphasis of national security or even abuse of the concept of national security that will harm in turn the free trade? Well, I, what I can see is every country focusing much more on national security. The US is, China is, the EU is, and the list goes on. This is a reality. So what we need to do now is probably invest in finding a better balance between efficiency and security, between the economy and protection. And we need to do this, and we need to do, be very careful about the balance. It has to be a very fine balance, yeah. because security is very much influenced by a zero-sum game mentality, whereas the economy and international trade is more about win-win. So we need to make sure that we protect more, but with ensuring the economy continues to provide us with a source of growth uh, of jobs uh, and innovation. You know, in the absence of development, there will be, uh, be I mean, more risks of national security. Correct. <laughs> so there's a need for more trade and more investment among countries. There's um, this comprehensive agreement of investment between China and the EU after seven years of uh, negotiation. Um, but it was uh, frozen, it was held by the uh, European Parliament uh, due to uh, different uh, issues over there. How do you see the prospect of, uh, let's say, of this CAI, this agreement, or uh, the future cooperation in terms of trade and investment between China and the EU? I mean, I think um, both the EU and China have as a, as a strategic objective to keep each other's markets open. Why? Because a big part of the growth, whether it's in China or in the EU, comes 
from open markets. So we both, both in the EU and China, we know that we have to keep markets open. But in order to keep markets open, we need to make sure that we invest a lot in building the confidence of these open markets, in trusting each other that open markets are accompanied by fair trade practices. I think that there is a space there to improve. And I would suggest that both sides make improving their trade relations and their investment relations a strategic objective for the future. Because again, for both, I've just been back from China, I know how important open markets it is for China. And I live in Europe, so I know how important it is open markets are for Europe. But keeping them open will depend on the sentiment of fairness that both sides have about uh, opening. So let the two invest more in ensuring the fairness of their trade relationship. Get a balanced analysis on both domestic and international topics within the framework of cross-cultural comparisons. This is Dialogue. So uh, probably that will be one of the major topics uh, for the upcoming summit between China and the EU. So what do you expect uh, from this uh, upcoming meeting? Um, I would tell you that um, what I saw um, in my visit to China is how important it is to have the opportunity to sit down at the table and sometimes agree to disagree, but do it, do it face to face. So what I hope uh, from the upcoming summit is that both sides come up, can come up with a list of areas where they can collaborate. And I think climate change should be high on the list. I think uh, financial stability, helping countries that today are in high debt stress should be a second priority. Peace and security around the world should be a third priority. And we have a multiplication of conflicts around the world. We've got Russia's invasion of Ukraine uh, on the one side. We've got trouble in the Middle East. We've got trouble in, South, in uh, Sudan. Uh, there are many spots around the world where we've got instability. And I believe that Europe and China working together can be a force for peace and stability if they decide to put this on the column for cooperation. So I think the objective is to make the column for co collaboration as wide and as large as possible and the column for conflict and competition as thin as possible, understanding that there are areas where we agree to disagree. Well, it's uh, very interesting, you know, here uh, for you to point out, you know, how important it is for the um, uh, in the offline meeting, I mean, the in-person meeting, face-to-face -face talk with each other. Um, do you think that it will also help eradicate probably the differences, uh, ideological differences, and sometimes the practice of a value-based foreign policy making? Uh, because when you are seeing each other person, in person, and probably you see we are very similar, we have more in common than, the, than differences. No, for sure we have differences too. And I don't think, I mean, mature people, mature countries and mature relationships can also manage differences. We have differences also. There are things that we see in different ways. And that is a fact of life. Let's not hide that but let's learn to manage it better. Prevent the differences from being an obstacle to working together, 
is what we have to avoid. And I, again, I think the resumption of uh, discussions and cooperation and people-to-people -people exchanges would be tremendously important for that. This year marks this 50th anniversary uh, for this relationship between China and Spain, and you were the former foreign minister of Spain. Um, looking back for the uh, decades of relationship, uh, you know, what do you have to say? Well, I think Spain and China have had um, 50 years of cordial, pragmatic, but probably underinvested relationship. I mean, I think there is a potential to do more. Our relationship is very much focused on um, uh, trade, a little bit on investment, a little bit less on culture. And I do think that there is a bigger space for culture and for people to people. We share love for food. We share love for gastronomy. I've been to China and I know how much Chinese love uh, Spanish food, but yes. I can tell you also how much we in Spain love <laughs> Chinese food. Um, so there are many areas of this relationship that in my view are underinvested. So my wish would be that the next 50 years are 50 years where we deepen this relationship, uh, that we do this in a balanced manner. I also see that when I look at the trade figures, um, there is a very big and growing deficit um, on the trade relationship. Uh, so, I mean, I think these are spaces where more can be done, more should be done uh, to make this a win-win relationship. Mm -hmm. Well, you mentioned the trade uh, between the two countries. According to the Chinese statistics, you know, the bilateral trade in goods reached 51.5 billion US dollars yep. last year. The first time in history it has exceeded 50 billion dollars. Uh, so, I mean, that's a strong growth over the years. Uh, and what do you see as probably the barriers or challenges or the potential for the two countries to work together in terms of trade and investment here? I mean, I don't think there is um, um, any impossibility. I think what we should do, I mean, it's true with uh, the two countries have passed the barrier of the 50 billion trade relationship, but it's very much a relationship that is imbalanced in favor of China. It, and it's a fact that there is a potential for Spanish businesses to be more present in the Chinese market whether it's in the area of food, whether it's in the area of machinery, whether it's in the area of beverages, whether it's in the area of services, where Spanish companies are tremendously uh, competitive, including in the tourism sector. So in my view, what would be useful is to use this anniversary. Anniversaries are always good, because then you look at the past. It's a reminder. That's right. You look <laughs> at the past, you look at the last 50 years, yeah. but then you try to make the next 50 years even better, right? So I, th I wish this would be the case. Mm -hmm. Well, if we focus a little bit more on this bilateral relationship, we know you know Spain as a member of the EU, yeah. uh, because EU has is this uh, uh, China strategy uh, de-risking, yeah. uh, as uh, Vandalin pointed out. You know, we do not want to decouple from China, yeah. but we somehow we have to probably de-risk a part of our relationship. Um, you know, the U.S. also talking about de-risking from China, reducing the business or trade or contact with China. Uh, are they in a similar situation? Um, because the U.S. is, I mean, competing or continuing China. Uh, they want to maintain the global domination. I mean, a supreme uh, position there. Because China, they see China as a challenge. But but you know, Beijing and Brussels, China and the EU, they are not competing for say global, uh, you know, a preeminence, right? 
So if I look at the world again, I look at uh, um, China and China is today more conscious about the risks it faces as a nation globally and Chinese businesses are more acutely conscious of the risks they face when they do business abroad. And if I look at the EU, I see exactly the same thing. European governments are more conscious today about the risks they face for their international insertion and businesses are more acutely conscious today of the risks they face when they want to um, trade and uh, be part of the global economy. And this has a reason. I mean, if you look at what's happened in the last five, six years, we've had many raptures. We had COVID where we realized that we had incredible dependencies. We in Europe discovered that we were dependent on paracetamol. We were only getting our paracetamol from one source and it gave us a sense of vulnerability. I think it's the same on the Chinese side. This is why China has 2050 strategy, why it has dual circulation in the EU. We've got economic security strategy. The risking is about better managing the risks that are today higher on the climate side and higher on the geopolitical side. But our challenge is to manage those risks in an intelligent manner and not use the fact that we have to de-risk, which I think it's intelligent as, a, as, an, as an economic strategy, but do not use this as an, as an excuse to close markets or to engage in protectionist policies. This is where I would draw the line. So yes, to be better at managing risks, no to using uh, the risking for the purposes of closing each other's markets for protectionist reasons. That's how I would, uh, this is how I would uh, consider it. There's, a, I think, a recent piece carried by The Economist in the UK. Uh, the, uh, the article mentioned about, uh, you know, the Trump, which could be, you know, the president of the U.S., at least we cannot rule out the chance there, uh, the potential, uh, said, you know, according to this article, there's some um, information saying that he and his team talked about, uh, you know, if he, you know, went back to the, um, the, the White House, he will impose tariffs on every partner, every country, to protect the U.S., to reduce the trade deficit, what will that be in terms of globalization or trade or trade protectionism here? Yeah, I mean, all of this is a very big speculation because we have to wait uh, and see what the American citizens elect as the next president of the US. But let's say that we've got a bit of an experience because we already had tr Donald Trump in the White House um, a few years ago and we experienced, all of us, uh, China experienced, but the EU also experienced unilateral trade policies uh, from, uh, from Donald Trump's uh, administration. So I think, in my view, whether we like it or not, the most intelligent avenue is to find the spaces where we will discuss and debate and work together to find solutions to things like uh, better trade performance, addressing trade deficits and, deficits and the rest. And that road leads to the World Trade Organization, which at the end of the day remains the best alternative we have to manage our trade differences. And we certainly do have trade differences among ourselves. So let's make all the roads converge into the World Trade Organization when it comes to 
discussing uh, the future of international trade. Mm -hmm. We're adding to this uh, changing uh, I mean, landscape of uh, global trade and uh, investment um, is this Ukraine crisis and now the Gaza crisis. Um, I mean, your expertise covers the foreign affairs, foreign policies also, as well as this trade policies there. How do you think these crises, you know, among, um, I mean, together with other crises, uh, affect global trade um, in terms of, uh, I don't know, the traffic maybe, in terms of oil, in terms of energy, in terms of uh, green, for example? Basically, all these conflicts bring turbulence, and turbulence brings instability into the international economy. Uh, it brings inflation, it brings uh, unpredictable trade patterns, it brings uh, more risks, it brings uh, higher prices. We've seen this uh, with Russia's invasion of Ukraine, how much prices of food, of fertilizers, of fuel have changed. This is bad for everyone, but let's remember, it's particularly bad for the poorer countries. So this is another area where, in my view, China and the EU could bring those issues into the column of cooperation to make this column wider, even wider. Well, as the first female dean of the Paris School of International Relations, International Affairs, um, what role do you believe women can play in shaping, uh, let's say, politics or international relations and uh, probably bring countries to work together for more cooperation? Well, first let me tell you that at uh, the Paris School of International Affairs um, in Sciences Po, we are very proud um, of having students from more than 130 countries. Men and women, that Impressive. Are many uh, coming uh, from Asia, many coming from China, um, which we welcome uh, because we think that this can be, with these people-to-people exchanges, this is how we can build a more solid bottom-up society. And equality, at the end of the day, is about building a more solid bottom-up society. Societies where equality is the norm, where men and women have the same rights, uh, the same rights in the economy, they earn the same for the job of equal value, they can get to the same political positions, they can be part of parliaments, uh, they can be um, in science, in education, in business. This makes for more solid results. So yeah, I, uh, I am very engaged into equality because I think equality makes for more solid societies. And at the time when we've got turbulence and we've got societies that are fragile, where there is a lack of confidence, bringing this through equality is something we should do. Thank you, ma'am. Thank My you for pleasure. speaking with us. My pleasure. <laughs>